Um, before Phil comes to read to us from John chapter 2, um, I wanted to say uh, this, that some people see John's gospel as mysterious and quite mystical compared to the other gospels, which is perfectly fair comment. But one thing in, that, in this gospel is not a mystery, and that is why John is writing and in, at the very end of his gospel, he says, um, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's what he wants to put out there as we read his account of who Jesus is and what he's done. Will we believe in his name and will we receive life? And as we saw, uh, John spoke about chapter one last week. Chapter one for John is like a piling up of verbal declarations from different people about who Jesus is. So first of all, he comes to us as the gospel writer. And he says, as you will know, in this rather mystical beginning to the gospel, that the word was with God and the word was God. So he is utterly convinced that Jesus Christ is God. And then in chapter one, there's this witness from John the Baptist who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in chapter 1, it ends with five different first disciples who say things like, one says to the other, I found the Messiah, come and see. And then you get Nathaniel at the end there in a little conversation with Jesus where he says, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So, so John's been piling up these accounts of people who met with Jesus and became utterly convinced that he was who he said he was. So then now in chapter 2, something changes and we set out with John describing what happened. He starts describing not people's words, but the works of Jesus, what Jesus actually started to do. And again, there's a lovely bit at the end of John's gospel, which says, um, I haven't been able to write down everything that Jesus did. And if we tried to do that, the books we would write would fill up the whole world. <laughs> and so what he's telling us is he has had to pick out things that he saw Jesus doing, things that he became convinced that Jesus has, has done. He basically selected some of those things and uh, to for a reason, to invite us into faith and to invite us into life in Christ. So that as we, re as we hear this story, I'd love you to be asking yourself, why did John pick this one? And why did he put it right at the beginning of his account of Jesus Christ? Because the other writers of the other Gospels start very differently. They start with accounts of, of people being set free from evil or people being physically healed. So what is it about this story that John wants us to come to understand? Why did he put it in this pivotal first place in his story? 
And John, you will see as Phil reads to us, calls this the first of Jesus' signs. And that again is a different word from the other gospel writers who speak about works of power, dunamis. But John uses this word sign. And if you've ever gone along the coastal path as I have and your legs are already completely buckling beneath you and you've done five miles or something like that, then you come to this sign and it says eight miles to poor Isaac. And you're, you're thinking, I don't know if I can actually go that much further. But the point is the sign, unfortunately, in that case, is not the destination The sign points you to something beyond itself. That's what a sign does. So even as we come to hear these extraordinary accounts of miraculous works that Jesus did, just bear in mind that that sign for John is to point you beyond itself to the person of Jesus Christ. And this is, you'll see, an absolutely amazing story. But as we come to hear it, Just listen out for how you will respond to to what you're going to hear. Because John wants you to think about, is Jesus who he said he was? And your response to that will change your life. So, Phil, come and read. Thank you. Okay, so as Joe said, just in case you haven't picked it up, um, the reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Thanks so much, Phil. So, can you imagine having Jesus on your guest list? If you had put out there a sort of gift list for your wedding, what would Jesus have selected off it? A fitted sheet, perhaps? Or a a plant pot? 
<laughs> the thing is, traditionally in the culture, the ceremony itself was actually quite small, but the party afterwards was huge and pretty much the whole village came along. The bride and the bridegroom would have gotten betrothed about a year before the ceremony. And uh, the groom would often be about 18 and the bride would be 14 or 15. And the groom, it was the groom who would then set to work. So they got betrothed and they'd actually in that culture have to get divorced if that betrothal um, broke up. But during that betrothal, his thing was to get a place ready for his bride. So he would go off and take a year. He would set to work to prepare this bridal chamber for him and his bride uh, where they could live. And this would typically be on, on, on the, the groom's family sort of land. And then when everything was ready, there would be this beautiful moment where he would come down the road with his friends and he would fetch the bride who had got, you know, someone would let her know that it's happening. And she would get together with about 10 of her bridesmaids and they would be waiting and all these blokes would basically turn up with great sort of joyful celebration. And they would all process through the village um, to... Um, so from her family home to where she and the groom would begin their married life together. So unlike weddings today, it was up to the groom and his family to supply the food and the wine. Some of you, if you're the bride's parents, would be thinking, oh, missed that. The groom and his family supplied all the food and all the wine. And it was a sign that the groom could look after his bride and would be able to provide for her. So it was really important that this was as lavish as possible. It was a sign of the status of that family in the village in a moment of great pride for all the family. And so in this story in verse 3 where you get these words... The wine has run out. Now, in our culture, that wouldn't be good, would it? It wouldn't go down well if the wine ran out at a wedding. But it wouldn't be the end of the world, I don't think. Um, but in, in that culture, it was a catastrophe. The culture was based uh, on a sort of honor and shame understanding where this would shame the groom's family, it would shame the groom and the bride. They wouldn't recover in terms of their standing in the village. They wouldn't recover from this. And so we come on to this fascinating interaction uh, between Jesus and his mum. So Mary, as Phil said, has said, there is no wine. The wine has run out. And in this account, it is clear that, that she looked at him or something in such a way that left him in no doubt that she was saying, do something, do something. And it reminds me, I must admit, of uh, when I've said to Bart, our son, when he was seven or eight, he was learning classical guitar. And I said, oh, go on, Bart, play your guitar for the family when they come at Christmas. Let's have a talent show. You're so good on the guitar. They'll love it. I'll write your name down. 
and tell them all you're going to play. Mums, mums, have we done this? <laughs> Where we try to get our children to do something because we want them to do it, we are usually convinced it would be good for them or it would be really helpful for someone else. And, and there is this extraordinary moment in this story <laughs> and an extraordinary response from Jesus who clearly understands her to be asking him to intervene. And he says, mother or woman, this is nothing to do with us. It's not my time. And lots of commentators are really quite mystified by what exactly is going on in that conversation. But it's interesting, if you follow the passage, you'll see at the end of verse 4, something has happened. Because Jesus seems to have changed his mind. Now, either he was moved by his mother's compassion, the thought of the shame that was going to come on this family and this young couple. Yes, his glory was going to be fully revealed in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So in that sense, his time hadn't yet come. But he seems to change course, and maybe he's tuned in, as you imagine he might have done, to his heavenly father, and he's got this yes from his father. Maybe he was simply jumped into doing something by his mum, who went ahead and told the servants, just do whatever he tells you. We're not exactly sure, but one way or another, this wedding becomes the perfect time to just begin to reveal who he is and what he's come to do. So it's a very intriguing account, but it does back up the old adage that mother knows best. Uh, though I'm not really sure that John particularly meant us to take that as <laughs> the main point of this story. Um, so then we get this miracle happening. And don't you think it's weirdly understated as miracles go? If you look again at verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw, out, uh, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, etc., etc. So there's this bizarre thing that Jesus, yes, does intervene. It does begin to reveal who he is. But it's kind of subversive. It's kind of covert. It's kind of unobtrusive. And there isn't some loud cry wine. Sorry, that woke one or two of you up. There's not really a calling down of power. There is only the servants and his mum who knew what had happened. And if you think about it, I suppose it must have been only afterwards when news start to spread and the disciples kind of cotton on. <laughs> They join up the dots and they realize that this was Jesus revealing who he is and what he does. And where Jesus has said to Nathaniel at the end of chapter one, he said, you hang around. You haven't seen anything yet. Truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. 
And you have to wonder when, when this happens, a miracle, an intervention. Is this what that looks like? Is this heaven bursting out on the earth in and around Jesus? And there's some brilliant, I mean, this is a brilliant story because there's good humor in this story. And, and it seems to me typical Jesus because, of course, you will have noticed that the master of the banquet, and he's this person who's really pivotal in these occasions. It's up to him to put on a fantastic party for everyone to go home and say how brilliant it was. He's a bit like Adam Moran, you know. It's kind of his job to be the MC. Is that a thing? An MC? Yes, to sort of make this party go with a bang. But he doesn't know where the wine has come from. And he actually goes across to the groom and congratulates the groom when he has failed spectacularly to provide enough wine. So it's supposed to be quite funny because all the people who are important and at the center of this thing have no idea what's actually going on. Whereas the people who are the unseen ones on such an occasion, the servants, have seen it. They've clocked. They know. They've become insiders now. And it's so typical of Jesus, isn't it, that the least are in on what's happening while the most important people miss it. The ones who are unseen actually are the ones who see. And there's that key from John in there, isn't there, about these servants who simply do what Jesus tells them. And because of that, they get to be in on that extraordinary miracle. And then again, there's supposed to be a bit of humor in this reference to people drinking um, a bit too much at weddings. And then, you know, most people then bring out the rough stuff and nobody notices and you, you've done the opposite. So it's a really lovely sort of story in that sense. And the other thing, of course, to notice is how much wine Jesus makes. So I did my little calculations. And as far as I tell, it's more than 500 bottles of wine. And it is the best wine you have ever tasted. So it's not even that he intervenes and kind of produces just enough. It's over and above. It's ridiculous. It's more than enough. And so we get this story on one level, which is Jesus intervening with, with a heart of compassion to lift shame off this family and off this young couple. And the bride, of course, would have been delighted at this amazing <coughs> sign of, oh, excuse me, the groom's great love for her. Uh, because when she tastes the quality of that wine, she'd be thinking, I am so glad I'm marrying you. But what are the clues there then? What are the clues beneath some of that that John's trying to point us to? What's the deeper meaning in this story? Well, one, I think, has to do with the jars of stone. That John points out that these jars are jars that were used for purification rites, for washing rituals. <coughs> so what you get here is this miracle of water into wine. And again... 
as Phil read, it says that they were filled to the brim. And I think there's this deeper meaning there about Jesus coming and filling up what the law set out to do. In Jesus, this, there, there's a new age set running, a new way of getting right with God. He's opening up this new way which the old way was always pointing towards. So it's really rather beautiful that these jars don't get just smashed and put aside. They get fulfilled. And that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. So now you don't need to follow those rituals to get clean. But Jesus comes and does something within us that transforms us so that we are clean on the inside and we begin to live out of that transformation. So it's supposed to mark a letting go of the old and a pressing into some kind of new age. And then the other little clue there, I think, is that at the beginning of this account, John says, slightly randomly, on the third day, there was a wedding. And if you think about the first Christians reading these accounts, what would on the third day bring to mind? They're boing, it would be resonating away for them with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus risen from the dead, the third day. He'd been three days in that tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And so John is trying to link the resurrection with this event. And he's trying to remind them of what Jesus has done as they read about this account after the resurrection. He's saying this, this incredible miracle was a sign of the future set running by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then, in a way, the biggest clue is the fact that this is set in a wedding. So somebody called this a romantic comedy, this story. And we've talked a bit about the bits of comedy in there. But they were saying this story is like a happy ending, but on a cosmic scale. So we all like, and we all know those great films that end with the wedding. But this is like the ultimate happy ending. Jesus steps in and he lifts shame off this couple and he brings joy to something that could have gone downhill into misery and disaster. But he's doing something much bigger than that. He's signaling to you and me forever that in him and in the intervention of who he is and what he's going to do, that he is going to bring, lift off shame and bring joy to all of humankind forever. And so Paul, uh, John, as he writes this story, puts the ending, if you like, right at the beginning of the story. And he shows how the things that are yet to come are starting to appear now that Jesus has come and dwelled among us. So as I stop in a minute, 
Um, I think I just want to make sure that we have grasped that this story is so important because it's a wedding. And Jesus, if you like, is the cosmic bridegroom. He has supplied the wine, which was always down to the groom. He's stepping in and saying, I am the groom of all grooms. <laughs> I have loved you. I have chosen you. I have gone, as he says in John 14, I've gone and got a place ready for you. And I'm coming to get you. <laughs> and then we are going to have the most massive celebration. <laughs> and it made me think, like, if you can think of the very most amazing party you've ever been to, what would that look like? Is that a chocolate fountain for you? Is that like an un, one of those limitless brunches? <laughs> Is it like the best red wine coming out of your kitchen tap? Whatever it is, multiply it by infinity because that is the invitation to you and I. What Jesus offers here is a deep and rich, experienced joy. Both now, but also into eternity. And you know, preachers are often glum and gloomy. But if they were truly biblical, she says, um, they would not be able to get around the fact that we are heading into a massive party. Now, if you know your scriptures, you will know that all through the Bible, you get um, the, this image coming up that when, when what Jesus came to do comes to its fullest completion, this is what you're being invited into. Here's a little snippet from Isaiah 25. This is the prophet looking ahead and he says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Um, a banquet of aged wine and choice pieces of marrow. No, not quite so good refined aged wine and on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples even the veil which is stretched over all nations and that's what some of us feel like at this moment he will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken that's in Isaiah. And then again, um, in Revelation. This is a quite well-known bit. Revelation 21. It says, And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The wine has run out. The wine has run out. That is for many of us what it feels like right now. And yet, 
Jesus is offering to take us from facing shame and poverty and emptiness to living in and out of this rich, beautiful, overflowing celebration. And I know, and even today, I've heard some pretty terrible things about what we in this community are facing in our own, among our own friends and family, what the planet is facing, what the world is facing, what our country is facing. And let's face it, how many of us feel right now? We feel like the wine's run out. But maybe it's all the more reason to press into the party that is to come, that promise of more to come. Maybe it's all the more reason to pray, God, cause me to be an agent here and now of more of you. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I came across a great quote from Lord of the Rings. Uh, is that Sam Ganji chappy? And um, he thinks Gandalf has died and he has been injured. And he comes round and sees Gandalf that he isn't dead. And he says, <laughs> he says, is everything sad going to become untrue? Is everything sad going to become untrue? And this is our story. We are being invited to press into or just cling on to the greater reality, a reality beyond the limits of this present age. To press into something far better, something far more glorious. So John's question remains, will you trust him? Do you see who he is? Will you believe in his name and let that change your life? And I think there's two things that God wants to kind of just remind us of. One is that unshakable hopefulness that we carry, especially in a time like this one. And the other is that rather intimate um, like picture that, that, that John brings to us as a of this wedding, of this groom. It may be a bit weird for some of you to think about <laughs> being a bride or part of a bride. And we know that weddings have gone wrong in the past. Maybe you disappointed about your own wedding day and maybe a marriage failed and so the wedding is a, is a hurtful thing to remember. But you, but you are being invited into thinking of the best possible, most glorious wedding that signifies an incredible and beautiful love that will last forever, a faithfulness that will not let you down. And Jesus is saying, I've gone first. I've shown you how much I love you. I am yours. I'm giving myself to you. Will you give yourself to me? Will you love me back?